Well, I'd like to invite you to turn to Psalm 119 in your sanctuary Bible, Psalm 119. You'll find that on page 608, 608. I'd like to say a word of introduction about Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. It is also the longest chapter in the Bible. It's, it's incredibly long. And it's a psalm that's based on the Hebrew alphabet. It uses the Hebrew alphabet as its pattern for its construction. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and this is how the psalm is structured. In the first eight verses of this psalm, every first word of every verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. The next eight verses, every first word of every verse begins with the letter Beit, which is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and on and on and on through all 22 letters of the alphabet until you end up with somebody who can do their math quick, 176 verses. 176 verses. So it's a really long psalm. So it's a poem that's structured around the alphabet, and you can deduce from this that the psalmist is trying to be thorough. They want to praise God from A to Z, in essence, right? Not only that, are they trying to be thorough, this is a meditation on God's law. And this is how the first verse of it goes. We're not going to read it later, but it goes like this. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Now that word law there is the word Torah, and you can translate that as law from the Hebrew into the English. It translates perfectly well as law, but it's a much bigger concept than law. It's not just do's and don'ts. It's God's instruction. It's God's teaching. Torah means teaching and instruction as well as law. So you could say, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the instruction of the Lord. And that sounds a little bit different. There are several other words that are used for God's instructions in this particular psalm and other psalms. And in your Bible, they'll be translated with other words that we have for laws, like decrees and precepts and statutes and things like that, just to mix it up a little bit. This psalm is so long that even though this is a praise song about God's law, there's other elements of psalms in this, other kinds of psalms, of genres of psalms. And so there's even some lament in the middle of this giant psalm. But mostly it's a praise and it's a meditation on the goodness of God and what he's given his people. The section that we're going to look at today starts at verse 57, and it's the Hebrew letter het, or hate. That section is going to focus a little bit on the ability of God's instruction or God's law to create unity among us. And look for that particularly in verse 63 when it's read. So with that introduction, Psalm 119, and we'll be reading verses 57 through 64. Psalm 119. You are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all 
who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. We thank you for your instruction. And we pray that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. The church you're sitting in now, Foothill Covenant Church, is part of a larger denominational body that was founded in Chicago on February 20th, 1885. 129 years and three days ago to this day. And that meeting, when they first formed this denomination, had as its founding verse part of our reading today, Psalm 119, 63. I am a friend to all who fear you, who follow your precepts. You may be able to imagine what it was like that day in Chicago 129 years ago. It was cold, really cold. There were 10-foot-high snowdrifts on the railroad tracks that kept some of the delegates from arriving for three whole days. But inside, where they had the meeting, the atmosphere was warm. Christians from all around had gathered to ask themselves this question about whether churches could band together in a more formal way to make a covenant with each other. And that was the word that they used, to make a covenant with each other so that they could do more for the kingdom of God united than they could separately. And on the first night, they meditated on this passage, Psalm 119.63. Friendship and communion with others is possible because they have the same God. I am a friend to all who follow you. If believers could band together in friendship to form a church, could churches band together to form a covenant? That's what these delegates thought they could do. That's why they called this meeting. And so they ended that first night with praise and worship and good feelings. They went to bed, and the next morning, they came back for the regular business meeting. But they had something of a rude awakening that morning. Almost right away, a man arrived named J.G. Princell. He wasn't quite a prince, but his name was Princell. He arrived at the meeting, and he wanted to receive credentials as a delegate. And this was a problem because... Even though Princell was a really a dear friend of many of the people there, and they knew him well, and he was an eloquent preacher, and some people thought he was a good pastor, he was not from one of the churches that was invited to the meeting. And so he didn't have standing. That actually wasn't all that was the problem there. Princell was dead set against the formation of new denominations. He didn't like what this meeting was about to do. He was part of a movement that was popular back then known as the Free Church Movement. It was this movement that was really a reaction to the abuses of denominations. Denominations, and that was true, denominations sometimes did things that were a little abusive of their members. And so some people saw denominations as really the problem. Denominations were holding back the church from being the true expression of what the New Testament wanted it to look like. And Princell was in that camp. He didn't like denominations. In fact, he was so against this meeting that leading up to it, in the months leading up to it, Princell had been writing 
in the Chicago Swedish newspapers that the meeting would be, and these were his words, a spiritual harlotry and a transparent hypocrisy. Wow. Uh, usually people don't say that before they come to our church meetings. You know, I'm, I hope they don't. If they did, I wonder why they would even come through the door if they thought that. He even suggested that people who thought like him should come in great numbers to this meeting and get credentials and vote down the whole idea. That's how opposed he was to it. So just imagine that a, de a delightful person like this arrives at the meeting that he hopes will fail. And he asks if he can have the credentials to speak and vote at the meeting. Wow. Well, what happened next is really great. A lot of drama. I wish I was there for it. A lot of drama. The meeting voted, and it took some time, but the meeting voted, and they decided that he would not be given a voice. What's good about this is that they did take their time to make this decision. Perhaps too much time, according to some of the people that were there. But he was still a friend of a lot of them. He was dear to them. And some of them were confident that even if he spoke, he really couldn't do that much harm. If you read over the notes of that meeting, and there's at least three accounts from different people, you get the sense that this was actually an awkward way to start the business meeting of this founding denomin denominational founding meeting. Some people got a little upset. Some people got a little bent out of shape about this whole affair. And what's good was it wasn't just an easy thing to dismiss this person who had terrible boundaries because they cared for him. And aside from the question of whether denominations should exist or not, they had a lot in common with him. So they made a, the right decision. They made a healthy decision. They told him that he couldn't talk, and he went away. And they got past it soon enough, and they got on with the business at hand. And in the next few days, the child was born, the denomination that you're sitting in right now, and it had a constitution, and a new set of officers were elected, and it was great. It's been going strong for 129 years since that day. Now, this story, with all its drama, and I love this story, it really highlights something about the church that we're in now and the denomination that we belong to. That first meeting, something in that first meeting endures to this day, and that thing is friendship. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. And this has always been the first move of our denomination. Before their founding and even after their founding, and as Pastor Zach said earlier, these people were known as the mission friends. That's what they were called by their neighbors. They were always ready to extend a hand of fellowship to anyone who would believe in the scriptures and who set Christ above everything else. This is how they would put it. They said the doors of the church, and by that they meant membership in the church or communion with other Christians, the doors of the church are wide enough to admit all who believe and narrow enough to exclude all those who do not. They thought that they could have a meaningful and productive fellowship with anyone, anyone at all who would be bound to Christ. But beyond that, there were not a lot of theological or doctrinal statements that you had to agree with in order to belong to their churches. They drafted their constitution at that first meeting, and in it was Article 2. And this is all of Article 2. I'm about to read it to you. Article 2 of the very first constitution of our body said this, 
This covenant confesses God's word, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament, as the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. Period. That's it. God's word, God's instruction. It's all we have. It's all we need. That was and actually is to this day our only real theological statement that we make. God's word. I am a friend to all those who fear you, to all who follow your precepts, to all who will be bound by Scripture. Friendship under God's word. Friendship under God's instruction. Friendship under God's law. That friendship is great. I feel it when I go to meetings in our denomination. I feel it in the churches that I've been in in our denomination. And that friendship under the Scriptures also kind of gives us some freedom. You may have noticed about that faith statement, how unspecific it really is, right? It says that the Scriptures are our only rule, good, but it doesn't tell anyone how to interpret the Scriptures, does it? Oh, hopefully we won't get that too, long, too wrong, and hopefully we, we won't. Within the confines of Scripture's authority, a person in the covenant church can and should have their own theological views on all sorts of questions. From what do the end times mean and what will they look like to how they should live out their faith in the public square, how they should train their children in that same faith, and so on. People should be able to make up their own minds. And that freedom is good. It, it means you work out your own faith in fear and trembling, which is good. But there's some problems with it too, aren't there? That kind of freedom for us can be a little bit scary. Sometimes we like it when there's more rules, more constraints on us. And here's something that I think is really big. We tend to have anxiety about how other people are going to exercise their freedoms. We get a little worried about what they're going to do, and sometimes we try to rein them in a little bit. Distrust like this can really make life difficult in the church unless we have friendship as well. Let me give you an example of this. When you and I have different views on something theological and our goal is to persuade the other person that they are completely wrong, then we'll never be friends. Because that relationship is not based on trust. It's based on winning. It's based on being right. And really, when was the last time that that happened, that you can remember? Think about it. When was the last time that you had an argument with somebody about something substantial that wasn't something you could verify with a fact or an encyclopedia? When was the last time you had an argument with somebody like that and they all of a sudden said, Oh, you're right. And I was wrong. You totally turned me around on that one. Thank you so much. That never happens to me. Never. Maybe because I've decided it's not worth that effort anymore, which it's not. Maybe I'm a terrible debater. I'm open to all the possibilities. I really am. But reality is that people don't change their minds that way. We trust the Holy Spirit is the one that transforms and renews the mind. And spiritual maturity 
is allowing the freedom of the Spirit to do that for other people and on the Spirit's schedule, nobody else's. You know, in our denomination, there have been times in the history of our body together where some people have actually tried to impose their theological will on everyone else, but it's never really worked. In the 1920s and the 1930s, there were attempts by certain fundamentalists to change the covenant church, to get it to adopt what were then known as the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And that's why they're called fundamentalists, because they believed in the fundamental. And there was nothing wrong, really, with these fundamental statements. They're all quite good. They're all scriptural. They pass all sorts of tests. They have all that going for them. And what's more, you can't spell fundamentalist without the word fun. So think about that. That's great. But it really wasn't that much fun when this happened because it was too forceful. It was too much of an attempt to get other people to believe what they believed. And the friendship that's in the DNA of this body has always seen that as a coercion and as a power play. We're not interested in coercion. We're interested in Jesus. To this day, you can be a fundamentalist and be a member of a covenant church. There's no problem with that. That's great. You have that freedom completely. But our commitment to friendship means that you can't insist that everybody else in the church be a fundamentalist too. Freedom is what allows us to have a faith of our own, and friendship sets healthy boundaries on how we exercise that freedom. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. I think the problem with Princell was he was so sure he was right that he thought it was okay to insult his brothers and sisters in Christ. But you can't do that. You can't. That's not the life that the New Testament calls us to. And the people at that meeting long ago saw right through that and they showed him the door, but not before holding out hope that they could still be friends with him. Some of them actually wanted to let him stay even though he didn't have standing. They were willing to let him even speak if he would take back the statements that he had made in the newspaper. If you just take back those statements, we'll let you speak. And his response was, I would take them back if they weren't true. So he had to go. There were actually some tough moments in that meeting. Like I said, I would have loved to have been there to watch the drama unfold. And ever since 1885, there have been more tough meetings in our denomination. There were years when it didn't look like we would make it because of finances or because of controversies or because of people trying to control each other. But we've survived 129 years and largely because of this, I am a friend to all those who fear you, who will follow your precepts. Amen.